Welcome to The Property Perspective, a podcast by Knight Frank Australia. We'll share expert analysis from industry leaders, focus on key trends and forecasts, and bring you the latest topics shaping Australia's property market. My name's Emily Ralph. I'm here with Lisa Attenborough and Neil Brooks. And we're going to be discussing today active capital and how investors around the world are navigating the volatility that we're currently facing. I am head of Living Sectors in Asia Pacific. Um, and Lisa Attenborough, I'll let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Emily. So, yeah, my name's Lisa Attenborough. I run the capital advisory business in the UK and we also cover Europe. This point, I'll hand over to Neil. Thanks. Yes, uh, so I'm the head of Global Capital Markets, uh, based in Singapore, basically to look after cross-border capital uh, for Night Bank. Well, let's start, I mean, we can't get away from conversations around interest rates and how that's affecting capital movements at the moment. So, Lisa, can you just give us a bit of a overview on what the current environment is, uh, how that's impacting investors and borrowers at the moment? Sure, no problem. Um, so obviously it's it's in everybody's mind at the moment, it's so relevant to all investors, not just into real estate, um, but the rising interest rate environment across the world in all major economies, it's really put a squeeze on profits, right? So if you look at this in the real estate context, it's impacted cash on cash returns, it in- impacted distributions, whether that's in Asia Pacific, in the US, in the UK, and across Europe. Um, so what's happened as a consequence is that there was initially price discovery because there's two levers that you can pull to try and um, to try and improve returns. The first one is debt costs can come down. That hasn't happened in, in the last 12 months. In fact, they've increased. The other lever that can be pulled is you pay less for the assets. The values come down. We've started to see that in, in certain jurisdictions, but of course, sellers don't want to sell at a deflated price. So that's led to this stagnation that we've seen. And I, and I believe we've seen this in, in pretty much all major economies, as I said. So that's been a really big impact. Um, and, and it's really reduced transaction volumes, um, particularly in the UK and Europe. Um, we're very much hoping um, that we're nearing the peak of interest rates now. The inflation data that's being released both in the US, in the UK, in Asia Pacific, is starting to trend in the right direction, which is a huge positive because it feels like it's been a very long 12 months um, and we've been edging towards this peak for a long time. The hope now is that if we are at the peak, it will last for, say, three to six months and then throughout 2024, we can start to see interest rates taper off slightly, which will, I hope, inject a bit more activity into the market. What, what impact will that have, Neil, on investors if they can start to see some certainty in where interest rates are lying? Are we going to start to be able to underwrite um, more efficiently and then be able to be more active in, in the capital markets? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the The inability to know what your debt cost is going to be has held up investors from doing anything. Um, we've seen some all equity buyers come into the market, particularly private capital, take advantage of a lack of competition from the normal institutional investors that they'd be uh, they'd be bidding against. But volumes are down 60 percent, pretty much in all markets. Um, and so because debt costs have gone up to 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 such an extent, it means that debt debt's not accretive um, to anyone. And also that price discovery is unsure. People aren't sure really how much asset prices have to fall because we haven't been, been sure how much debt prices are going to go up. I'd say as at today, I think rates are pretty much peaked. We might get one, one more quarter point raise. 
um, and then we're into a flat or falling rate environment, which is brilliant for the market because um, that price discovery will will happen quite quickly. Investor confidence will come back into the market. But also what we haven't seen is is investors selling um, because their holding costs have gone up so much. So a lot of groups have been holding onto assets, um, even if they're in the business plan to sell, um, because there, there hasn't really been a market there for them to sell into. So there's been a lot of pent-up stock, um, which which will come to the market, uh, we think, kind of Q2 uh, next year. So it should be a really active year. Absolutely. And, and sorry, Emily, just, just to add to that, there's also going to be a number of refinancings coming up, right? So if, again, coming back to the kind of cost of debt, you know, in the UK alone, there's between 40 to 50 billion pounds of loans um, put in place every single year. So the expectation is that as the, those loans then come to maturity this year, next year, and the year after, um, they'll have to be refinanced, but at a higher cost of debt. So that's going to trigger some activity, some sales activity, uh, whether that's by uh, the banks um, um, and, and some kind of forced sales, um, or just needing refinancing or recapitalization. I think that's something we expected to happen. I remember we talked about this when we caught up last November in Singapore and we were saying look there's going to be so much activity because of these refinancings and the interest cover ratio element that that the banks will be needing that protection so why hasn't that happened so far why haven't we seen this sort of distress coming through really the market question. really good question um and I think there's probably a little bit of um burying the head in the sand going on here in some cases so we started talking to a number of investors last year um, regarding their refinancing events that were coming up this year. Um, and our guide is always, if you have a refinancing event coming up in 12 months' time, now is the time you need to start thinking about it. However, because rates were rising at the time, a lot of investors thought, okay, maybe we'll wait. Maybe we'll wait because at the time we thought the inflation peak was was literally going to be short-term and therefore we thought it was going to be a short-term hike in interest rates. So actually, they might come back down. So they were just kind of taking that wait-and-see approach. On the debt side of things, so the lenders' decisions, um, from what I've seen, a lot of the lenders have given a period of time for investors to try and sell the assets. And generally, that period of time ranges from between six to nine months, right? And that gives the investors a little bit of leeway on the basis that within that period, they will sell the asset. So we've seen quite a few of these sales processes going through in the last six months. Where we're now looking for the refinancing opportunities is where those sales haven't been successful, right? So to your point earlier, Neil, that the, the the spread between the bid and the offer expectations is, is just too wide. So the sales haven't taken place. Therefore, the lenders are now starting to say, okay, we need to do something with this. Otherwise, we're going to take control. Yeah. Neil, you mentioned private investors earlier, that they've actually managed to be more active during this time when institutions have, have stepped away. Um, why is that and, and where are we seeing them particularly active? What sectors, what regions? So I think private investors often have a bit more conviction um, and are probably a bit more entrepreneurial and, and risk-taking in, in their approach. Uh, institutional investors generally fairly risk averse and the um the cost of capital for the institutions has gone up which makes them uncompetitive cost of capital for for private buyers is is really whatever they want it to be you know a lot of the time they're they're buying um on a, a much longer term basis um than institutional investors so uh 
it's unusual for for a market situation to exist where uh, a private investor can come in and, and bid on assets without that competition. So they've been taking advantage of of that and buying in really you know the best assets in really good locations they wouldn't normally be able to to get into. And at discounts are probably ten to fifteen percent off where pricing was uh, was about a year ago. Now there's a debate as to as to how much more prices have got to fall um, before uh, the, the whole market can come back in. You know the, those institutional investors can start to participate again. I think we're pretty much there, given where uh, where interest rates uh, are going to be. I suppose the other the other point which is really influential is the the income growth um we're, we're seeing um some vacancies in the office market particularly in in markets like the us which is really suffering from that a big work from home movement um we're, we're seeing quite a lot of redundancy in the office sector and so uh a lot of the private investors are looking more towards um sectors where there's more granular income um and more stability so that that really is more towards living sectors um built to rent, multifamily, student accommodation, things like that. I'd, I'd just probably add to that a couple of things. On, on the on the lender's side, we're talking about the living sectors. We've never before seen so much appetite for, for what we used to call alternatives. They're not alternatives anymore. They're mainstream. The lenders really like the sustainability of income, the predictability of income that's all underpinned by demand supply characteristics, right? So so that's kind of the, the living sector piece. Um, just touching on, on your comment, Neil, uh, regarding the office space. I'm a firm believer that what we're facing at the moment in the office sector is actually just a blip. I think there's going to be long-term demand for the office. We're just going through a structural change off the back of COVID, off the back of changing occupier demands and off the back of a, a drive towards buildings becoming more environmentally friendly, um, more ESG compliant. And I think the next few years, once we kind of work through those challenges in the sector, um, there'll be a lot of repositioning, a lot of CapEx requirements. But when we come through at the other end, then believe in the long-term demand of the office space. Yeah, I think office is actually quite good value buying at the moment in um, in in a lot of markets where it's going to be quite undersupplied because development costs have gone up so much. There, there's not not much supply coming through the next two two to three years. I think the work from home movement um, has has been big post COVID. Um, I think people want to come back to the office um, lifestyle wise. Also, I think as um, as the economy is slow, we're going to see um, we're going to see redundancies through you know, through banks and insurance companies, and people will want to be in the office more. I think um, which want is, to be in the office more, which is great for occupancy. Yeah. yeah. And Lisa, you mentioned that you're seeing lenders move towards alternative sectors, or not so much alternative sectors anymore, mainstream living sectors. Are you also seeing traditionally equity investors moving towards more of a credit strategy? And a big growth in in non bank lending. Absolutely, um, we, we've seen a, a huge growth in the number of credit strategies that have been set up in the last six nine months. Um, I'm literally contacted, or the Bolger team is contacted every week by a new entrant. Um, and the shape of these new entrants are either private equity. Um, so, for example, in the last year, um, KKR you know, Airings set up credit strategies that have been very very successful or um, equity investors, privately owned equity uh, investors that would typically directly invest into property um, have seen have seen this huge opportunity whereby rather than buying a building directly, 
they can lend against that same building at say 50% loan to value so that the equity check that's needed is half uh, and they can obtain pretty much equity-like returns for that same investment, but they're more secure because if everything goes wrong, they end up owning the building, right? So we're, we're definitely seeing a huge growth and a huge influx of new credit strategies and new debt funds across the UK and Europe. And I very, very much expect that trend to continue um, across across the world. Um, it's starting, of course, with, with the US because that was where non-bank lenders really started to begin, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I think we'll see that transformation in Asia Pacific and, and Australia, certainly. But in terms of the equity investors, Neil, apart from private capital, who else, um, what investors are you seeing that are very active at the moment? And where generally is that capital directed when we think about our active capital report and, and the results that come out of that? We're seeing a big increase in Japanese investment um, going into Europe, uh, US and Australia. This market really suits uh, Japanese buyers that, that tend to take a little bit longer to get transactions done. Uh, they haven't been able to access the market over the last five years or so um, because the speed of transactions for a lot of the the North American groups uh, or um, or local buyers has been really quick. And they this is now an environment where they can um, deal off-market and get access to transactions without that competition. So we're seeing them uh, use that advantage as well as uh, a relatively cheap cost of capital uh, out of Japan. We've seen... A lot of capital going into Japan as well. So typically, a lot of the Singapore government-linked companies, um, a lot of European investors have been investing in Japan over the last 18 months or so because they haven't had those interest rate rises we've seen in other markets. So debt's still accretive, um, uh, and uh, you can get a fairly good return in Japan, which actually resulted in yield compression. It's probably the only market globally where, where prices have, have been going up. Uh, so we've seen some profit-taking from Japanese groups, and then them just redeploying that capsule into markets where they're, they're buying at better value. Probably the the other buyer group that is active is uh, the Singaporean family offices. There's there's a huge amount of capsule sat on the sidelines uh, from, from high net worth individuals and pool capsule into family offices looking to be deployed into uh, the US, UK, Australia. Uh, they, they have been buying selectively over the last uh, six months or so. But they're, they're, they've been waiting for uh, that price discovering prices to bottom out. That's pretty much there. And I think as soon as um, as soon as soon one or two investors start to deploy that capital, that's going to be followed by probably another 10 to 15 groups. And we could see quite a competitive market um, driven by that, that Singaporean capital again. And have we seen a change in the way deals are structured um, compared to maybe typical outright asset acquisitions to maybe more capital partnering? Um, how has that altered? And perhaps that was more kind of driven through COVID, but we're actually seeing that that pattern continue. Yes, we're seeing more operational real estate. So groups are having to uh, to in- increase their returns through intensive asset management, particularly in, in living sector assets. The, the management's really important. So um, we've seen investment managers on the ground in markets being backed by overseas equity. Um, and so the, those joint ventures uh, have become much more frequent. Um, but we're also seeing in the office sector where um, repositioning assets 
uh, is uh, is the main way to, to drive value. And again, you need boots on the ground and, and expertise. So that capsule partnering model is something that we've, we've focused on a lot over the last five years. And then the market has been very active in that space over the last couple of years. So it's really interesting. It sounds like Asia capital coming out is, is very, very active. Uh, are there any other regions where we're seeing a lot of um, active capital and, and what's really driving that? We've seen um, big inflows into the Middle East. Uh, so we're, with high oil prices, a lot of the, the Middle East and sovereign funds and family offices are really well capitalized at the moment. Uh, and they have been far more active going into the UK and Europe, generally looking at slightly higher returning assets, core plus style assets. Um, and we expect to see those groups really active, particularly going into credit strategies, um, as Lisa mentioned, um, and uh, and taking advantage of, of the discounts available in the US um, and looking increasingly into Asia Pacific. Uh, Middle Eastern groups haven't been particularly active in Australia over the last 10 years or so. That's about to change. Yeah, I think generally we're, we're seeing that investors and global investors are, are looking to really diversify across all the regions and, and there's a lot of groups particularly that are underweight in say Asia Pacific and so we're seeing a big reweighting capital that way and also reweighting capital across sectors so perhaps there is some downweighting in office and retail that's happening at the moment and as we've said moving into to living sectors but also those new economy sectors as well I think they're a really uh, appealing to investors at the moment. I, I agree and only um to go to middle um, and eastern investors, we, we've had some long, we have some long-standing relationships uh, with a lot of the Middle Eastern banks. They've been very active um, in the UK, France, the prime residential market over the last few years. And what we've seen more recently is a, is a diversification away from focusing on super prime into more rental properties. Um, and you mentioned obviously the high high oil prices at the moment. That's that's just driving and increasing their their capital allocations. That they are very very much prepared to put into real estate via a credit strategy. One of the debt funds that that we work quite closely with um, is backed by the the Kuwaiti um, Investment Fund, and I mean they are incredibly active and looking for minimum ticket sizes of 150 million plus um, to lend into real estate across all subsectors. Um, but mainly with a kind of value add play. Um, but we're ex- very much expecting that that kind of part of the world to, to grow in terms of their allocations to real estate in the coming year. Okay. So I think uh, as a wrap up, sounds like there, you know, we've had this period of inertia caused by the macro environment. Um, but there is undoubtedly huge amount of capital waiting in the sidelines, um, ready to spend. And I, I think in the, the latter half of this this year and certainly into Q1 next year, we're going to see a huge amount of activity a, a, across the world and, and across sectors. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it feels like after 12, 18 months of, of you know, slight uncertainty followed by inertia, as you said, I, I feel like as we're coming into 2024, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, there was capital waiting there. There are definitely you know a large amount of sales that are going to be backed up, ready to come to the market. So. Yeah, our expectation is that in 2024, it's going to look very, very different to the way it looks now. Neil, you share those views? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the The amount of equity is very different to the to the GFC that, that is there waiting. It does feel a bit like the financial crisis the last 18 months has felt like that. Um, but it's, it's a very different situation um, now. But it, it's more just a repricing um, and some, some visibility on where debt costs are going to land. I think we now have that visibility. Um, so the assets 
uh, are going to be there to buy and the equity is there. So we'll certainly see a lot of activity um, from the first quarter of next year, my prediction. Brilliant. Excellent. Thanks so much for listening and uh, please stay tuned for the rest of the series. Before you go, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on the next episode of The Property Perspective, when we'll be back to share our take on more key trends and topics shaping Australia's property market. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website at nightfrank.com.au for more information. Thanks for tuning in. It may be the end of the show, but we're always your partners in property. 